Hello, my name is Mark Gibson, and you're listening to the podcast version of the Chagask Signpost series, a weekly webinar that promotes and examines sustainability in Irish farming. Good morning, and you're very welcome to this morning's Signpost webinar. Uh, my name is Pat Murphy, Head of Environment Knowledge Transfer with, with Chagask, and coming to you this morning from a sunny, clear, crisp uh, Athenry, not our usual haunt. I'm joined this morning by by Catherine Keena, also in in Athenry this morning. Good, good morning, morning, Catherine. Morning. How are you? And I'm delighted to be joined by Catherine Finney. Uh, Catherine is is project manager with the Curlew EIP to discuss the the progress and and uh, that that project, which is is focused on on the I suppose the the, the welfare of one of our marquee uh, bird species that's under. Uh, a huge amount of threat. Catherine, you're very welcome. Thank you very much, Pat. Catherine, you might just uh, describe to us your, your background. You've been with Birdwatch Ireland for a significant time uh, <laughs> and how you ended up trying to save and, and protect the, the curlew. Well, I suppose, um, Pat, I have a background in agri-environment um, and I've been with Birdwatch now for, I think it's nearly 19 years. Um, time, and time flies when you're having fun. It does. It does. It seems to have flown by. Um, it's longer than I'd care to admit, definitely. Um, and I suppose I have a background in agri-environmental scheme design, um, specialist advisory and predator management. Um, so that's largely I've been working with um, breeding waders for most of my time with Birdwatch Ireland. Um, so, yeah, they're kind of there are species. They're, I'm from the Shannon Callow, so there are species that I would have grown up with. So they're quite close to my heart. Very good. Well, listen, without further ado, I'll get you, if it's okay, to uh, share your presentation with us. The Irish Breeding Curlew EIP, um, it was established to try and develop agri-environmental solutions um, to the decline of curlew. As Pat mentioned, it's one of our most threatened bird species. It's a multi-partnership project between Birdwatch Ireland, um, the Irish Grey Partridge Trust, the Irish Natura Hill Farmers Association and Chagas. It was originally a three and a half year project. It was to run until December 2021. However, we've been extended twice. The project operated in two very distinct um, areas. Um, the lower lock Carob, which is a wet grassland, a lowland wet grassland site, and the South Leitrim Bogs area, which is a mixture of blanket bog and uh, damp, rushy pasture. Of course, Curlew are one of our breeding wader species, and they're our most threatened breeding wader species. And as I said, um, I've been working with breeding waders now for my career with Birdwatch Ireland. And in the time that I've been working with breeding waders, I've watched all of these bird species um, become red listed, and I've watched curlew and now very recently lapwing make it onto the globally threatened with extinction list. Um, so I suppose, needless to say, we haven't been, these species haven't been doing well in Ireland over the last 30 to 40 years. Um, and if we want to protect them and we want them to, um, to still exist for our children, we really need to kind of get on top of this. Just to give you an idea of the scale of the declines, Curly was once a very, very widespread species across the landscape. And back in the 70s and early 80s, they were estimated to be about 8,000 pairs. But over the last 30 to 40 years, they've declined dramatically. And by 2011, we realised there was something really seriously going wrong. And that was really what kick-started a lot of the action um, for Curlew. Unfortunately, things have um, declined, the species have declined even more since then. And based on the last national survey, which was in uh, 2000, I think it was 2021, there is only now estimated to be about 100 breeding pairs left nationally. So that was quite a catastrophic decline. Um, we are looking at species extinction um, for curlew in Ireland within the next 10 to 15 years if we cannot get on top of this. So the declines, where the decline is so severe, um, we know that there has been significant loss and fragmentation of breeding habitat, <clears throat> both from there's been new pressures such as wind farms, afforestation, of course there's been destruction of peatlands. Of course wind farms and afforestation is something that is positive and that we do need in this country but they need to be um, appropriately targeted and we do know that um, wind farms can displace um, curlew when they're a location or breeding areas. 
We also know that um, afforestation um, not only leads to a direct loss of um, of habitat, because of course, like all breeding wave species, will nest near a forest or a scrub. Um, but it also leads to an increase in predation pressure for about a kilometre from the edge of that forest. So it has kind of quite significant um, uh, um, um, uh, on curlew. Of course, wind farms and forest have traditionally been targeted at the areas where curlew and other breeding waders tend to, to breed. So that's kind of lost, led to a fragmentation of breeding habitat. On top of that, we know that these are a lot of our bots have been lost to commercial ex extraction over the last 20, 30 years, 40 years. Um, and in, in addition to that, we know there's been a loss of grass and grasslands and semi through pastures through agricultural intensification. And um, agricultural operations, breeding season can have an impact. And of course, the increase in mechanization in agriculture and the intensification of agriculture has led to a change of practices which can in in impact um, breeding currently breeding waders. There's also been an increased predation of nests and chicks. So we know that um, declines always, always start with habitat loss and frag fragmentation. And when the habitat is suboptimal, um, that in itself can lead to population decline. <laughs> in addition, it can also make the, um, the population more vulnerable to predation. And again, that further fuels population declines. Um, in, on top of that, we know that there's been an increase in predator numbers nationally. So we know from the bird atlases that corvid populations have increased. Um, and we know, obviously, in the last 30, 40 years, we've had populations have increased. And socially, we know that there has been an increase in fox numbers. And that stands to reason because back in the 80s, <clears throat> there was a bounty, quite a significant bounty on foxes. And, you know, coming from a rural area, everyone I knew was shooting foxes back then, um, whereas now I only know a handful of people controlling foxes. But waders are ground nesting farmland birds. It's important to remember that they are farmland birds and they are reliant on the um, farming systems. They nest in approved and semi-approved pasture, upland and lowland bogs, wet grassland, curly sometimes nest in improved grasslands and silage fields, and lapwing of course nest in arable land. Um, and it's quite um it's quite telling to say that there's no one habitat in Ireland that these species are doing well in. So that just gives you a sense of the scale of the problem. They breed between March and mid-July, so it's quite a narrow and short um, breeding season. Feed mainly on soil invertebrates. Of course, in winter breeding, they disperse to coastal areas and wetlands and they form large flocks. We also get a large number of um, birds from uh, northern Scandinavia, northern Europe come over here to, um, to, to, to winter. So that in a way has masked within the public domain. It's kind of masked the declines we've been facing with these species, because when you're seeing hundreds and hundreds of flocks of hundreds of these birds, it's very hard to get your head around the fact that they're actually critically endangered. All of these birds are semi-colonial, um, curly least so, but it is still loosely colonial, and that can be a positive and a negative. It can help act as a uh, protection from predation, but it can also mean that a predation inc um, incident in a colony or, say, an agricultural operation in a, in a colony that's causing damage can cause complete breeding failure of that colony. Yeah. Okay, so all four species um, can be provided for by providing a mixed sward. And this is in the sward height and the sward structure during the breeding season is incredibly important. Um, lapwing like to nest on really, really short ground. They don't like to be surrounded by vegetation. Curly like to nest in um, longer patches of vegetation where they can hide their nest. And red shank and snipe like to nest in tussocks. Um, and it's really important that this word structure is correct during the breeding season. If it's too long, um, the birds can't see predators coming and they will abandon. And if it is too short, there's nowhere for them to hide their nest. 
As soon as the chicks are um, hatched, they leave the nest cup and they're responsible for feeding themselves. And they're just tiny little um, balls of fluff. This, of course, is a lapwing chick. They need um, damp flushes, damp pasture and kind of short ground in order, short grass in order to kind of find the ground dwelling vertebrates that they feed on. And this is really important for them. They also need um, patches of longer vegetation to hide in and to hide from predators in it. And this is also really important for them. Research from the UK has actually shown that the single most significant factor in successfully fledging curlew chicks is sword structure during the breeding season. Um, and it's important that it is correct during the breeding season, during peak breeding. As I said, it's a very short window of um, the breeding season is a very short window. There's no point in having sword structure um, and the habitat conditions correct, say, in July when the birds have finished breeding. Um, so it is, it's a very dynamic element, um, but it's incredibly important. None of these species will nest generally within 100 metres of a tree, our bush, or scrub or forest, and they don't like anywhere kind of surrounded by forests, because of course this is where the predators are and um, that will target their nests and chicks. So Curly EIP, we have been developing a number of options. We had a number of habitat options, including result space habitat option, delayed mowing option for uh, for curly in Meadowland, um, capital works, knowledge transfer groups. Key to the project, the development of an agri-environmental scheme for farmers to carry out predator control, and that was the conservation keeping scheme. We also tried um, temporary um, nest fences and satellite tagging and some contractor training. Farmer participation was really, really hot. Um, we were massively oversubscribed for all of our options. We had about 47 farmers in about 250 hectares in the team. And we had 35 farmers in the habitat option, another 33 in the conservation keepering option. And some of these, many of these were in both options. The curly habitat option was a results-based option and it was supported by specialist advisory and training farmers. We know what curlew and um, breeding waders need in terms of habitat. So all of the elements that were scored were all very important for producing breeding habitat and for protection from predation. Uh, we had our top scoring for a 10 out of 10 field. Um, the, the payment rate was 430 and the, the, the measure was capable of overlaying um, gloss, many of the gloss options. So we were able to offer top up rates for those. So the results, what we found is um, for fields in the scheme for at least two years, um, there was a highly significant increase in field scores between years. Um, and of course, an increase in field scores um, results in an increase in payment rates for the farmer. And it also in, uh, leads to an increase or improvement in breeding habitat. And that's what we're after. Of significance was the fact that between 2020 and 2021, there was no significant increase in field scores. And generally what you would find in the first year of a project, that your, 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 your field scores would improve um, from the baseline score. Um, but what was different in this particular instance was that in 2020, of course, everybody was grove grounded due to COVID and there was no farmer training in place. <laughs> And that was the only year that we we found no significant increase in field scores. So as long as I've been working in agri-environment, um, we've known that um, the delivery and farmer training is absolutely crucial to the underground delivery and success of higher biodiversity measures. So it's actually nice to see this borne out by the results, even if it um, in this case. When all fields were included, the, there was a significant increase in field average field score year on year. And even between areas. So in Carob, there was a highly significant increase in field scores year on year every year. And in Leitrim, <clears throat> there was a highly significant increase in field scores every year for 2020 and 2021. 
Um, to note here is Carb as a lowland wet grassland site, it automatically um, had um, higher um, field scores because the habitat was just that little bit different um, and a little bit better for breeding waders. In Leitrim, it was a very difficult landscape. Um, what we had was we had a lot of um, um, blanket bog um, surrounded by scrub and trees. And then surrounding that was like nice damp, rushy pasture, but quite often they were um, um, suffering from a lot of scrub and trees and on the margins of them. So it was a, quite a difficult landscape, Leitrim, but it was really good to see that we were still able to um, um, influence an improvement in habitat quality. <clears throat> Many of our um, elements of our um, scorecard and our capital works have made it into the acres um, breeding wager scorecard. And of course, this is only in the acres CP areas at the moment, but we would hope that with the advent of the National Breeding Wader Project, that many of our, these elements will be carried through nationally to all areas where curlew and breeding waders are. A really key element of our um, project was the development of an agri-environmental scheme for farmers to carry out predator control. And as long as I've been with breeding waders, predation has been, um, you know, a, a key issue that we've needed to address. Um, and I suppose we've long known that this was something that was was needed. However, it can be quite a difficult um, measure to develop. And really, until now and until the advent of locally led schemes and schemes that are supported by specialist um, advisory, the delivery mechanism for a measure such as this just hasn't been there. So with the advent of this type of delivery mechanism, um, it's really opened the door to being able to develop a, a measure like this. Um, really, it's something that we have known for a long time is needed because predation has been an issue for um, um, has been an issue um, for breeding waders for as long as I've been working with them. But the delivery mechanisms um, weren't there before, and really, the advent of locally vet led and um, schemes, agri-environmental schemes supported by specialist advisory has really opened the door for um, for the development of a measure like of the, as such as this. Um, so we realised very clearly, um, very early on, that we needed to create a completely different product. This isn't, this isn't predator management for sport or pre predator management for game bird management. It is conservation keepering. And it's has a clear rationale and very, very clear objectives, and that is to conserve a species and to help productivity of a species. There is an emphasis on ethics and standards, and the equipment and methods meet the highest ethical and legal standards. And we spent a lot of time on this um, in researching best practice internationally um, and looking at our equipment and looking at our standards and our methods. And in many cases, we went far, far above the legal requirements um, nationally. Key to the um, implementation of this scheme was the development of policies and standards. And this really was the governing, um, governed the work of our conservation keepers and also the farmers in the conservation keeping scheme. It set out clearly the rationale for predator control in these instances and when it is appropriate to carry it out and when it is not. It also very, very clearly set out the um, the methods and the equipment that could be and should be employed. Um, and as I said, it was a really important um, document that covered, covered the work for the last couple of years in this project. So what we had, we had a really big interest and a high uptake from farmers. And this really was a real surprise. Um, we... I suppose, didn't think that we thought that this was a skill that was lost from the landscape and that farmers maybe wouldn't take it up. But we were massively, massively oversubscribed and we could have taken in many, many more farmers. Um, on talking to the farmers who entered, I think one of the biggest things they said was that there was a clear understanding among the farming community that they knew the legislation had moved on and they knew the methods um, and best practice had moved on and they didn't feel confident in carrying out predator control um, because they felt that they could have been out of date and that their knowledge was out of date. 
They also liked the fact that it had a very clear objective. It was for a purpose. It was to help save Ireland's biodiversity and the biodiversity on their farm. So it was a huge interest from them. Each farmer received about 20 hours um, training um, before they even started their option. So they received advice and training in insurance, um, the governing legislation, and of course, a lot of the governing legislation on predator control is a criminal legislation. And they also received detailed um, um, training in the scheme requirements and the scheme methods. We help them apply for the wildlife licenses. And of course, all predator control is governed by wildlife licenses. Um, so we made sure that all of these were in place for them. We gave them training in the equipment and the methods of control that were permitted by the project. So before the farmers even opened a trap, they were fully insured, they were legally protected, and they were absolutely crystal clear on the requirements and the methods um, that they were carrying out. Each farm was um, tailored to a farmer's chosen methods and capabilities. So a farmer could choose any methods of control that were permitted. Um, and we assessed their capabilities in terms of firearms. We set very stringent um, requirements on the caliber of, uh, caliber of rifle and the type of shot that could be used. And if a farmer couldn't meet those um, requirements, then they weren't permitted into any of the shooting options. Only equipment specified the project could be used. Um, and in this instance, we supplied the equipment to the farmers. A key element of the scheme was that farmers could work on another farmer's land. And this is really, really important, especially when you're dealing with conservation keeping, where you might have a farmer in a key area for um, a breeding site, um, but they're not comfortable carrying out predator control. But the farmer down the road might be happy to incorporate their land as part of their plan. And this was a possibility. And it was farmers were very comfortable with this because obviously they were felt they were fully insured. Um, so they were fully protected. The farmers were paid by time. It was not an area-based payment um, and it was not a numbers-based payment. It's not about controlling numbers. It's about controlling the right right predators at the right time. Um, and we could make up um, a plan um, for these farmers based on whatever methods they chose. What we generally found was about 12 to 14 hours per week for a new entrant was you know, an optimum number of hours per week. And as I said, we could make that um, 12 to 14 hours per week up at any point um, out of any method that they had chosen to deliver. So just to give you an indication of um, how successful the farmers were at catching predators, they were incredibly, um, incredibly successful. And you can see really high background predator numbers here. They didn't control, they suppose they controlled lower numbers of foxes than maybe you might expect. But that was because many farmers just do not have the firearms anymore and do not have um, and aren't interested in carrying out fox control. But for the other predators, they're very, very significant um, at controlling back high background populations. It should be borne in mind that these farmers were immediately adjacent to or in curly breeding territory. So this was quite a small number of farmers very tightly around where we had breeding curlew. So it gives an indication of the scale of the predator problem that these birds are under. Of course, we had full-time um, conservation keepers on hand and they were um, central to the training of the farmers. And they were also carrying out um, uh, predator control during the breeding season. And again, when you combine their um, their catch, and again, this is very tightly in and around where the curlew are breeding, you can see that the predator back background predator population, the landscape is just massive. Um, look, we're up on what 14,000, 14, sorry, 1400 predators in Leitrim in 2022. Of course, our conservation keepers um, were far, um, far more significant at controlling fox. Um, and that's generally because it's quite a specialised um, skill. So going forward, the conservation keeping scheme, it hasn't made it into the National Agri-Environmental Programme this time. Um, I would be fairly confident that going forward, um, it will eventually make it in, especially if I have anything to do with it. 
Um, it is incredibly important at removing background predator populations at a landscape level. And I suppose it's important to say that it is not meant to, and it was not designed to replace professional conservation keepers. When these birds are as critical as this, we need professional conservation keepers working tightly in and around them, and especially for the control of foxes. So the conservation keeping scheme for farmers, it was about supporting this and carrying out predator control at a landscape level. It has the potential to be rolled out nationally to all areas with ground nesting birds affected by depredation. And of course, this includes corncrake, hen harrier and grouse, as well as breeding waders. So going forward, what we'll probably look to is having a look at some improving the auditing capabilities of the scheme. And of course, we also need to start a national discourse on predator management. I mean, it needs to be recognised that it is a legitimate and um, essential conservation tool for the protection of our ground nesting birds. We also need to look at building capacity. I mean, we do not have a culture of professional keepers in this country, and that's something that we need to look to. Um, and it's something that myself and Shane here in the photo our conservation keeper have been working on over the last number of years. We've taken in assistant keepers to try and build capacity and train some up. But we've also um, worked with um, college students to, to put it on their radar as a, um, as, as a career path going forward. And quite simply, if you can't see it, you can't be it. We also trialled some new technologies, so we carried out satellite tagging and we used that satellite tagging to locate nests um, and to trial our, our nest fencing. Um, it also helped us direct our conservation keepers and direct our predator control to um, try and influence fledging. We combined our data with NPWS who are also carrying out satellite tagging. And that data was analysed to show how the birds are using the surrounding habitat and what kind of habitats they need during the different stages of their breeding cycle. And also it it's going to help inform targeting of agri-environmental measures. So how many kilometres of habitat around a known breeding site do you need to bring in to an agri-environmental measure to, to help ensure successful breeding? Satellite tagging um, has also... Um, informed um, what we know about um, curlew breeding populations. Um, together with um, satellite tagging in the UK, we found that there's been behavioural issues, that are behavioural elements that we, we weren't aware of. So for instance, traditionally by standard practice, if you had a territorial a bird displaying or behaving territorial, that was considered probable breeding. From satellite tagging, what we've actually found is non-breeding birds, say birds that are too young to breed or just are not breeding in that, in that particular year, are actually also behaving sometimes territorial and can indeed kind of loosely chick call. So it's, it's rewritten some of what we know about the, the behaviour of non-breeding birds. And that's going to help inform our conservation measures going forward. We trialled a number of nest fences um, and where we managed to locate the nests, we found that they were very successful at influencing successful hatching for the birds. However, um, in the landscapes that we were working in, um, and because curly were very secretive, very difficult to find their nests, only one of these nests was found through, um, through survey work. Um, unfortunately, sat tagging is not a long term solution because the birds eventually become trap shy and they can't be caught. So eventually we're going to have to look to how we can kind of put in place measures to find nests more successfully. So in terms of the populations within the project area, um, I suppose because we know that not all, um, not all pairs, probable pairs were actually um, we've analysed the productivity data based on the number of birds we had that we knew were breeding. And of course, we know what we need in order to influence population stability and population growth. So for the pairs that confirmed breeding, we influenced population growth in both, in two, for, in both areas in 2019. And then in Carob in 2020 and 2022 also. Whereas we only managed to influence population growth or stability for um, in Leitrim 
2019 and 2023. And this has been borne out by the population, um, the total population figures that we have for these areas. So as you can see in Karab, the population are, has increased started to increase in 2023. And of course, that's on the back of a couple of years of, um, of population growth um, productivity. In Leitrim, where we had many years with, where we weren't managing to influence population, our, our productivity, um, the population has declined. Um, and again, what we have in Leitrim is a very difficult landscape. And there are a lot of issues going on up there that this project um, didn't have the capabilities to solve. Um, and of course, we know that our curly population, the adult population is aging and they are starting to die off. So if we don't have recruitment into the system, we are going to lose, um, lose these birds. And of course, in carp, we have a number of other wader species. Um, and during the lifetime of the project, um, their population started to increase as well. And we know that the measures that we can implement for curlew are also beneficial to the, uh, these other wader species. So measures of success, I suppose, um, I've been working in agri-environmental scheme design for most of my career at Ireland. So may I always take, there is really three measures of a success and they're all central to how these um, these schemes deliver on the ground. I suppose the first one is, have you developed a, um, a scheme that works? Is it capable of improving habitat and is it capable of influencing productivity? Followed by that, it's, has it been adopted by the national programme? Um, you, know, you mean, if it's not rolled out and if it's not implemented at the wider scale, then it doesn't matter how good it is. So has it been adopted by the national programme? And the last and very crucial element of this is effective rollout. Um, and in this, advisors are absolutely crucial to successful rollout. Um, and it is really, really important that they are supported and um, by training and advice on this and how to roll out these higher biodiversity measures. Um, farming training, we know, is absolutely essential. Um, and farmers are crucial in imparting their knowledge to these farmers. And really, it's this mechanism and this element that is going to be the difference between whether these um, schemes work on the ground and work um, going forward. I think it's been, um, I've been really privileged as part of the EIP. I've been very lucky in the Carob area to be able to hand over, do a complete handover to the, um, the Acres West team in Carob. Um, and that included, I was able to give, um, provide their, their project team and their advisors, um, with training and advice on how to, um, what, what these curly and what these breeding waders need in the area and also how to score the scheme, how to score the measures, what habitat to look for and where to locate, um, um, their NPIs and landscape actions. So I suppose it's really over to the advisors at this point um, in terms of the successful implementation of this measure on the ground. Really fascinating. And I think one of the things that strikes me, it's it's a real vindication of the EIP process. Um, we've had a huge yeah. amount of learning from the EIPs that uh, we had in the, in the last round. And uh, I, uh, we're starting a process or the department are starting a process of, of recruiting again, the EIPs for the for the next phase. And it, to me, it's it's a real evidence of the learning that we can get from from these small scale and uh, uh, projects. And I think it, it's now crying out uh, for uh, I suppose an extension and and a, a, um, a broadening of the, the the learning. I suppose one of the questions you 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 talked about the the handing over to the CP um, team in in uh, um, Connacht, but the, the, the CPs are predominantly around the upland areas, yeah. and I presume there's a lot of the habitats you're wanting to protect are not in those habitat areas. And I suppose the question arising from that is, are there a number of, of areas that, that effectively need to be added for spe specifically for breeding waders to the approach that the, the, the CPs, and I'm not being critical in, of the CPs because I think there's an amazing job uh, being done, uh, but but is it 
is your main finding that we need to extend it to other areas? Yeah, and actually, I'd probably in the kind of um, in the pauses, I probably missed part of that. Um, it, yes, absolutely. And certainly Birdwatch Ireland has carried out um, um, hotspot mapping for breeding waders. And what we've shown is that a lot of these breeding wader hotspots and curly hotspots are actually located outside of the CP areas. Now, we do know we do have a national breeding wader pro EIP coming on stream next year. Um, and so that should hopefully take up delivery for these um, these birds in these areas. Um, but at this point, we, we don't really know um, the structure of that because it hasn't been it hasn't been advertised yet. And I suppose one of the things that that kind of probably strikes people as being a little, little bit counterintuitive is the requirement to uh, do predator control to protect uh, some of these species. It, it probably there's a lot of people who probably doesn't sit well with, but it's it's an absolute necessity, I think, from what you've described. Absolutely. And I mean, I suppose there's no two ways about it. Um, you know, we have influenced um, pre the predation issues. So as we've kind of fragmented or created suboptimal habitat for these species, we've made them more vulnerable to predation in the first instance. But then changes in our um, agricultural enterprises has also led to an increase in in predator numbers as well. So, you know, at this point, they should be self-balancing, but we have actually put it out of balance. And now we need to step in and rectify that. And on, we have to, it's, I suppose, we have to um, understand that there's very clear rationale to this. Um, it's not about kind of controlling for sport. It's about controlling during the breeding season to allow successful breeding. You uh, looked at, uh, I suppose, mainly when you described the species of, of prey, uh, it was crows that you were particularly uh, uh, looking at. And we've had a lot of or some success in, in the raptor species in over the last number of years. But the day form a threat as well. Does the, is there a balancing act there or are, are they not a threat to our, our, our breeding whalers? No, absolutely. Look, everything with a mouth or a beak is a threat to is a threat to breeding curlew and breeding waders. But we do know the species that are driving driving population declines. So definitely there are species they will take them, but they're maybe not the main drivers. We know that the main drivers of population declines are grey crow, magpie, fox, and mink. Um, and that's not to say that other species won't take them, um, but they're not causing that kind of national decline. Okay. Catherine, huge number of questions coming in. Yes, lots of questions. And again, thanks to Catherine for coming on. And Pat, following on from your, the, about the good work from EIPs, it's something I'm very conscious of. And even when reports get written up, I think it's, um you know, coming on the signpost webinar really brings it to a wider audience. So I think it justifies our involvement in them, doesn't it? It's it's really key part at the at this end of the process. Um, Catherine, you talked about the importance of um sword structure at specific times of the year. How does that for nesting or whenever how does that tie in with the scoring or when is the best time to score these lands um oh yeah i mean if you are in a cp zone and you're implementing a breeding waiter scorecard it's absolutely crucial that this is scored um in and around kind of mid to the end of may beginning of june because i suppose it's a highly dynamic aspect you know sword structure whether it's short long mixed you know whatever it's very very dynamic and you can have a situation where it is absolutely perfect in july but sure what's the point in it being perfect in july if birds are finished breeding Okay, thanks. Um, I keep going with the questions. Um, the conservation keeping scheme, I suppose, um, when people think of, of, of firearms and, and different things, they worry about health and safety. Were there any issues that arose, um, you know, or have you identified or how do you manage that, those kind of issues? No, I mean, we had absolutely ran this measure now with for three years um, with 33 farmers. We have absolutely no problems, no non-compliance issues, um, no breaches of the legislation, um, no accidents, 
at all. Okay. And I suppose key to that was um, the farmers were really, really well trained in. They knew exactly what the legislation was and what their requirements were. And they were really well covered, really well insured and really well trained going into it. They went into this measure with their eyes wide open. OK, thanks. Uh, Catherine, a lot of people are picking up on the tree issue and I think it's new to people. Um, and just a couple of ones. Is there any difference between native woodland as opposed to coniferous forests? Is no, no better. No, no a tree better. is a, a tree is a tree is a tree. Yeah. Okay. A tree is a tree. It's a perching post for. It's a perching post. Yeah. Okay. Or, you know, home for predators. Yes. Um. Uh. Somebody in Carlo knew them in in the seventies on the farm. Is there any way of getting them back? Um. Uh. In, in tillage, but not very intensive. When they're gone, um, are they, when they're gone, are they gone? It's difficult. I mean, they're considered to be, all breeding native species, including curly, are considered to be site faithful. Now, that can mean site faithful to within um, 20 kilometres in and around. But quite often, they come back to the same field. So yeah. there is a range, but very often it's the same field. I suppose if they're lost from, if they're in the general locality, they're possibly, but I mean, you would need to look at growing the population. Um, and ensuring that the habitat is is suitable for them. And Catherine, one for advisors. Now I hear advisors talking about who are drawing up, putting in the NPIs in the CP plans and um, the wader scrapes where, where the field is identified as breeding wader, but there's a lack of water. Can you just, um, it seems to be I'm getting a lot of questions on that. Um, is that, can you just elaborate on how an advisor would encourage a farmer to put in a wader scrape? And what is it? Um, yeah, like a wader scrape is just, it's a really, really, really shallow. I mean, it's very, very shallow. It's less than probably a foot max. And it's really not about, it's not a pond because what we're looking for is the kind of damp, wet mud. And that's where, if you think of a hot, sunny day, that's where all the invertebrates and the insects are going to be for the chicks. So um, they are very crucial in areas and fields where maybe they don't have natural kind of wet areas okay. or they don't have... Or they don't have kind of river margins that are suitable. Approximately what size width and length ish? I mean, I think the sizes in the oh, the sizes in the MPIs in the CP zones are. Um, don't worry about the detail, but they're small. Is what I'm getting at. They're small. Yeah, they are yeah, small. Yeah. And actually, what we were trialing, I think the the the, the measures that the those scrapes that we were putting in on this EIP were considerably larger. We were putting in ten by twelve meter scrapes with two two foot deep at the at the bottom. What's central to these um, scrapes is that the soil is like that that the, the slope of them is no more than a thirty five degree angle, and that's absolutely crucial. And I suppose what other element which would be central to them is that they're not replacing. Um, areas that are suitable for the birds that you're not putting it in a place that's already suitable it's meant to augment and in and increase the amount of of habitat and of course they're very um they're very very important because if you only have one or two of these and you have all the chicks feeding around the margins of that particular area then um one predation incident can wipe out all of them and Catherine just the practicality so you get a digger you do, you do your scrape and you put the soil where do you put the soil? You, you, it's important that you spread the soil over the, you know, the kind of surrounding landscape. You don't create this sort of ledge effect. Hope. Okay, super, yeah, super. That's really practical them. advice and very timely because lads are putting these in as we speak. Um, do you want to take one or two? Yeah, and I'll well, come back? Uh, yeah. just, I suppose it's, it's a, we're at a water quality conference and there was a whole session on the, the the extra challenges we're going to face as a result of, of climate change. And it strikes me that that uh, a move to drier summers and and uh, potentially higher rainfall events could also be challenging to some of these species. Absolutely. Yeah, no, I mean, they can. I mean, if you get significantly heavy rain, just as the chicks are hatching, you can, the actual, the chicks can, can die. Um, just you know, just shortly after hatching, so it is. It is going to prove massively challenging. It'll probably mean um, wader scrapes, and these measures are actually more important going down the line because they can hold water for a little bit of time um, during the dry periods. Um, but yeah, definitely, it's going to it's going to prove challenging for everything. 
Catherine, coming back on your results the, of the actual, you know, it's very short term, as you said, but did the field scores um, increase the curlew population or how long does it take to do that if everything was done right? Comment on that. I suppose what we've seen in the carob area, the combined effort of conservation keeping, farmers carrying out predator control um, and the habitat did improve um, productivity and it did improve the population. Again, in Leitrim, while the habitat, we did influence an increase in field scores, um, there are other factors that are more challenging up in that landscape. But certainly in I've come off the Shannon Callows and I've done a lot of wager work in the Shannon Callows. And we do know from um, from past experience that sometimes all it takes is getting the habitat right to improve populations. Um, and, I, and I suppose a question in relation to the uh, continuing of the, the agriculture as well. Uh, are you really, are you talking about reducing agriculture or have you been looking at ways to maintain maybe a modified form of agriculture, but with still a, a, a significant output, or are you looking at reduced output agriculture? You're probably looking at low intensity agriculture. Um, you definitely, you know, these species, they they need kind of reduced stocking levels of about one livestock unit per hectare until the 1st of July. And that's key to say that it is only until it is a very brief period um, and no tractor operations until kind of in and around July as well. Um, just when the chicks, they are ground nesting birds, so it's just to protect them from the agriculture operations. A reduction in fertilizer, because if you have a big thick sward, it's not suitable for breeding in and it's not the chicks can't get through it to feed on and um, find the invertebrates. So I suppose we need to bear in mind as well that although the measure is targeting um, curlew and breeding um, and breeding waders, it's also providing for water quality and carbon because you're looking at reduced fertilizer um, inputs um, and you're looking at kind of not draining that particular area and keeping water tables high or relatively high in those areas. So it does have other spin-off, um, spin-off for climatic um, um, objectives. Uh, just uh, you know the policy on where we may be increasing the water table to conserve the carbon in peat soils. I wonder are any of those areas um might that be a help to the curlew and the breeding rivers? Yeah, yeah, no, that that definitely that would be complementary to what would be needed for curlew. Um, go back to the woodland then, just again. Can you, maybe you've said it already. The but the minimum distance from scrub or woodland, um, and is it and also is it different for a single tree? You know the way we we we're removing single trees at times from from uh, areas. So how far from a woodland and how far from a single tree? Well, I suppose from a forestation research has shown that um, there is an increase in predation for up to a kilometre from the edge of that forest. Um, but we do know that waders don't like trees and they don't like scrub and they won't, general rule of thumb is about 100 metres from a tree or scrub, tree, yeah. they won't they won't use or won't nest. Um, it makes them more vulnerable to predation. So if their nesting, main nesting area or main chick rearing area is within 100 metres of a tree or scrub, that's I not a good I suppose the difference there, Catherine, would it be that the in the, the woodland you'll have the foxes and people things coming out of it. The single tree is the perching post for yeah. for the yeah, okay. So there's a yeah, yeah slight difference there. Um yeah, the question more there, yeah. Yeah, looking at the, the your map and observing that there seems to be a better holding of population in Northern Ireland than there has been in the in the Republic. And is there any difference in in policy or, or practice that, that has led to that? Yeah, well, I mean, I suppose um, Northern Ireland um, and the UK have, have had kind of um, have had measures in their agri-environmental program for breeding waders for very for much, much longer than we have. I mean, they're they're probably from they've been ahead of the game for a long time, whereas we've only really gloss was the first breeding wager measure we had in the national program. And the final one for me there about Will we need to, either conservation keepers or trained farmers in a scheme like what you've done, will we need to do it forever? I mean, certainly in the medium term at this point, I mean, these species are 
incredibly vulnerable and critical at this point. And I suppose it's very hard to say because it really depends on how our agri systems evolve um, down the line as to whether we can um, reinstate a balance. But certainly if a population is robust and strong, it should be able to sustain a certain level of predation. That's a natural. Natural. Um, That's natural. I suppose we, we we're running out of time. I I think one of the the messages is is that we need to continue studying and and continue learning. And you said there's hopefully another EIP uh, coming up, but I presume that the target now has got to be to get the the areas that we can work in identified and pulled into our our, our agri environmental scheme processes that have developed so well over the last number of years, but need to be extended to. Uh, to, uh, to support the, the breeding waders. If that, is that a fair sum up of, of where we need to move? Yeah, absolutely. And I think we're at the point now, I mean, it's in the CP zone. We know it's going to be part, form part of, our measures are going to part, form part of the National Breeding Wader Programme. And I suppose we really now need to look at supporting our advisors with advice and training on how to implement this measure and how to deliver this information to the farmers on the ground, because that is going to be the key measure of success going forward. Okay, listen, thank you very much. I think we've we've all learned a huge amount uh, and it's really good to, to, I think, just make people aware of the, the learnings that have been coming from the EIP. Uh, continued success with, with, with the work you're doing and with, with a bit of luck, I think we'll see mainstreaming and hopefully uh, improvements in numbers to, to back that up. But that's, I suppose, is the ultimate challenge uh, and that's where we, we need to get to. So listen, thank you very much, Catherine. Really fascinating uh, uh, presentation. Uh, thank you for staying with us through some of the challenges we had uh, through the, the presentation. It, can, it, it happens. So uh, thanks for that. Uh, thank you to Catherine for your help with questions. Thanks for, for Mary for uh, uh, in the background. Uh, next week in in the theme that we're talking about, it's it, it may be a little bit of a case of of uh, poacher turned gamekeeper or gamekeeper to- turned poacher because I'm part of the presentation team next week uh, uh, presenting with with uh, Mark Plunkett and looking at uh, past, current and and possible future uh, fertilizer use and and soil fertility uh, uh, based on on information that we gather uh, within Chagas. So until next week, enjoy your weekend, stay safe, and hopefully we'll see you next week. You've been listening to the podcast version of the Chagas Signpost series, the weekly webinar that promotes and examines sustainability in Irish farming. Don't forget to join us live every Friday morning for our latest webinar. For more, visit chagisk.ie. And you can also rate, review and subscribe to the Signpost series on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts from. I'm Mark Gibson and thanks for listening.